welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 24. Great program this week. Really excited to speak with my guests on a topic of uh, political importance and personal importance and social importance. But before we get to all of that, as usual, I will get down on my proverbial hands and knees and make my plea for Counterpunch because, of course, I think Counterpunch is really important. If you're a regular listener of this program, you obviously think so as well because of the perspective that it provides, because it's truly independent media on the left, provides that critical perspective, standing apart from the crowd, standing apart from the pseudo-alternative media. I know if you listen every week, you've heard me say this a million times, but, you know, Counterpunch is still uh, at the tail end of its fun drive. It's, It's looking to make sure it can pay the bills of the upcoming year and, you know, you get the podcast for free, you go to the website for free. If you'd like to be a donor, if you'd like to be somebody who helps to keep this project going, go to the website, pay with PayPal, use your credit card, whatever you got to do, just, uh, you know, you'd be part of this community. And I think that that is really important. Also, of course, if you like Counterpunch Radio on iTunes, giving us a positive review is really, really helpful. Uh, If you've ever looked at the iTunes uh, podcast section, you'll see that a lot of stuff gets recommended and that recommendation is based on those positive reviews. So drive us up the charts, bring us to more listeners. That will be tremendously helpful. And uh, of course, also Counterpunch provides that print magazine. Get a subscription to the print magazine. That's another way to help uh, this Counterpunch project. Lots of things that you can do to get involved. And of course, you benefit, we all benefit. And um, yeah, I don't know that there's much more to say about that. Anyway, let me get to the real issue at hand here, and that is a discussion this week about public education. Such an important subject, uh, something that I am uh, very, you know, I, I think of it as a very personal issue. I have experience in public education, and it's something that I, I, I think is absolutely critical to defend, and I'm very, very happy, really excited to speak with Gia Lee this week. Um, Gia is uh, a a member of the Moore Caucus, that is the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, as well as the organization Change the Stakes. She is a special education teacher in New York City, and she is the candidate for the presidency of the UFT, that is the United Federation of Teachers, representing the Moore Caucus. So, with all of that out of the way, (sighs) Gia, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, You are like uh, one of my heroes here in New York City for all of the work you've been doing. So um, let's talk a little bit about you and who you are and some of the things that you've done. Because, in fact, there might be some people listening to us right now who have heard of you because you did something very remarkable uh, not that long ago. You are a conscientious objector to administering standard test, the high stakes testing. You were in Washington. You made some headlines. Tell us about it. Tell us what happened, what you said, and why this is important. Thanks, Eric. Um, You know, it's funny because I I keep, you know, when I meet people, I often say I'm just a teacher. I'm just a mom who feels very strongly about um, what's happening in public education today and has been unfolding um, underneath us without any of our input, without any democratic voice whatsoever. And so, you know, I got to a place in a school 
in the East Village where, you know, a leadership academy principal had come in and uh, started to kind of target teachers. I didn't understand what was going on at the time. It wasn't until much later. But, you know, just a little background. Um, our chapter leader in the school had, uh, you know, was pretty senior teacher, was probably, you know, qualified for retirement and decided, you know, she wanted to stay in teaching because she loved it so much. But in comes this leadership academy principal, puts her in the rubber room at that time um, under false accusations. That teacher actually won her case. And, um, and I learned quickly that this administrator was using divide and conquer tactics within the school. We could understand, you know, teachers, we assume good intentions. We want to do the best job that we can because we work with children and families. Um, so when this was all happening, I just, you know, maybe this administrator is coming in and has a lot of pressure on her. You know, let me go try and talk to her. As a result, uh, I was asked to be the chapter leader there and negotiated and formed consultation committees to try to bring some diplomacy and common sense and, you know, just to undo some of the tension that was building in our school. I still could not understand when I started to hear that there were other schools where teachers were being targeted in the same way. Um, it seemed that more, you know, senior teachers who were higher up on the pay scale were getting mm -hmm. targeted yep. as well as newer teachers. And I think, um, Eric, we'd spoken before and you can relate to that. And I think a lot of the listeners can kind of relate to what's going on, um, to what actually to what I'm saying. And so I called it, you know, and um, others have called it just this insanity that started to transpire. As a result, I, you know, was starting to look for another school, possibly, um, you know, also looking to go into a leadership program that was more progressive to bring this other possible vision um, back, you know, bring back the focus on our students. And I ended up at Bank Street um, in a teach teaching for educational change administrative program. And there my eyes just opened to um, a longstanding, you know, progressive education culture that is mostly in the private schools. Yep. And that, you know, there are just a few schools in New York City uh, a small network of public elementary, middle, and high schools that are have been able to kind of maintain the progressive values, and so I sought out these schools to kind of see what is the, you know what is this all about. And when I did, I said, "Oh my God, this is what all schools deserve. Mm -hmm. This is what all teachers and students deserve is to have um, freedom and autonomy in their teaching and their learning." Um, to not be under the stresses of high stakes testing under, um, you know, really critical and, you know, micromanaging administrations. And that's when I said, I have, you know, now that my eyes have opened to this, I have to be a voice. And I just saw that I had no other choice but to speak out. And I found others who were like-minded and um, said, you know, instead of, you know, we could either fight, you know, it's either fight or flight, mm -hmm. right? And, um, or you can stand your ground kind of in the middle and be assertive in this. And so that's where I think I found myself. 
Yeah. You know, one thing that's really interesting, and you, you kind of um, are getting at it, but I want to sort of take it head on, is that what you're talking about when you say the Leadership Academy, again, for people who aren't familiar with it, mm-hmm. the Leadership Academy is basically this, uh, let's call it a principal factory, right? Where they right. where they send, in, they send in candidates who want to be principals, they indoctrinate them with this sort of corporate propaganda about how schools mm-hmm. should be run, uh, basically demonize teachers, drive down the wages, do whatever you got to do to bust the union as best you can. And then they send them off and give them uh, leadership positions at various schools. And this goes on year after year after year at, during the Bloomberg administration in New York City. This was the major uh, initiative as far as the administrative side. So uh, the Leadership Academy, and you also, you mentioned the the, the Rubber Room, which is this mm-hmm. infamous, um, uh, I guess, New York City institution where they would basically house teachers that they could couldn't place anywhere because they mm. had been booted out of the classroom, but they couldn't necessarily be fired without due process. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify some of the terms for people because mm. uh, what you're getting at, Gia, is, and I'm going to use the word, it is corporatization of mm-hmm. education. This leadership academy and all of the different kinds, these are corporate initiatives, the implementation of the corporate model onto public education, which is in many ways the antithesis of the corporate world, where you don't right. have students as customers, but students. So let's talk a little bit about that, because what you're really getting at, I think, is this awakening you had to the corporatization of education. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, so the actual model from which, you know, Joel Klein, who was appointed chancellor um, way back in the Bloomberg era, who actually instituted the Leadership Academy, his advisor was Jack Welsh, right, the CEO of General Electric. He also advised several major corporations, Microsoft, Adobe, and several others on this system of stack ranking. Um, it was a point system. And the idea was you, you know, use a norm reference bell curve, which is the same system uh, used with test scores. Mm-hmm. It's norm reference. It's not criterion reference. And so what you get with that is a bell curve. And the idea was you fire the bottom 10%. And the problem with that, and if you start, you know, Google Slate Magazine's um, article on uh, the Microsoft CEO stepping down, and several other news articles in the Wall Street Journal and other, you know, economy journal, journals and newspapers, um, they wrote they write at length about the failure of this stack ranking system. It was horrible for innovation. It was horrible for, uh, you know, building community within within um, businesses so that there could be great ideas that proliferate. In fact, it what it did was it narrowed thinking. And it narrowed um, the ability for people to do their best in building the business and innovations that we're, you know, that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet this is what still is at the basis of our school system. And I think the goal is to kind of divide and conquer. Yep. And it's happening. Um, and you have the, the unfortunate part is, you know, you have schools in receivership. You have teachers who are being, you know, basically ranked at the bottom and, you know, cut off. And then what about our students in these schools that are also on this norm reference bell curve and they're at the bottom 10%? They're in schools that are being labeled falsely based on invalid metrics and faulty metrics 
So, you know, we don't have much time. I have this sense of urgency to highlight, hey, this isn't working in the business world because it goes against everything we know about building humanity and building, you know, innovation um, to make a better world. And, you know, we have to to put an end to it now in our school system. Well, you know, I, I would push back a little bit only in the sense that I, of course, agree with everything you're saying, mm-hmm. but I would push back in the sense that I don't think that we can say that it's not working. It's just that it's not working for positive educational outcomes. Right. It's working very, very well from a corporate perspective. You've had mm-hmm. you have a, a a teachers union which has uh, never been weaker. You have a, uh, a a massive labor force that is more or less run in a in a highly undemocratic way to say the least uh you know it is or it is labor it is a labor union but at the same time it is in many ways uh very much under the thumb of a very small clique and i think Mm -hmm. that um on top of everything else you have all of these various mechanisms by which the powers that be the corporate you know privatizers Mm -hmm. are trying to break the union whether it is using the uh fast track teaching programs like the new york teaching fellows or teach for America or whatever mm-hmm. to bring in crops of new teachers every year to tr- to try to divide older teachers against mm-hmm. younger teachers, veterans against rookies and so forth uh, to get a, a drive down the wage levels to drive mm-hmm. up turnover. All of these things, these are the standard operating procedure for union busting. And that right. is what's happening in education. But in this particular sphere, there are children at stake. There is a future exactly. at stake and that's what makes it so insidious right you know the bigger picture is lean production right the model of lean production you stress the system and then you you know see what falls off and that way you're working with less and profit the idea is for them to build profit somehow right that they want to take a big chunk of the public education pie and um so in that sense, they had a really good head start with their PR campaigns. All the AstroTurf groups, um, the large charter chains mm-hmm. uh, who have their lobbyists up in Albany and at the federal level, um, just, you know, reaping the rewards. The, the counterpunch to that, right, is that we're not stupid. Um, teachers, you know, students families, you know, communities, members are not, we're not stupid. And we know, we can tell when something's not right. And within our own union, there are teachers who for so long have, you know, call it uh, contract unionism versus social justice unionism. But when we know that our jobs and our uh, ability to do our work is being compromised, you know, some of us have started to question our union leadership in you know, saying that having a place at the table is is more important than listening to what's happening um, at the school level. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to come back to the union question because, uh, I mean, that's really a a major important point to hit. But I just want to return to the... um, this sort of institutionalization uh, mm-hmm. that that we've seen in terms of uh, the destruction of public schools. I give you one example. Um, my my uh, partner, she works up in Harlem in a public school, and the teachers who have been in that public school for many years have talked about the way in which the 
student body has changed dramatically in that school because they are quite literally surrounded by charter schools. Mm -hmm. And these charter schools are able to filter their student body, right? So they're able to basically pick and choose who comes into the school and who Mm -hmm. doesn't. And whoever those schools either decide not to admit or who they decide to kick out during the school year, they then quote unquote dump them into the local public school. And But this sort of selective uh, admission process, it's incredible that we would even call it that, but that is ultimately what it is. This is one of the very, uh, again, I'll say it, insidious ways in which they've institutionalized the destruction of public schools because then they turn around and say, well, you see, this school's a failing school. All their scores are terrible. All of their student, you know, the, the classroom management is bad, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't actually stop to consider the moves made behind the scenes to create Create that scenario. Right. No, it's stack ranking within that system. Mm-hmm. That's what the charter schools are, especially, particularly the large charter chains like Success Academy, KIPP, um, you know, they're all about stack ranking. Um, every fall, we'll find at my school uh, students who've been pushed out yep. or, you know, as they call counseled out because, you know, after I think it's October 31st, they get to keep the money they received from the city and state for that student. And when they, that child is, you know, not scoring well on their practice tests, they counsel them out. And it's usually, it usually happens in, you know, second or third grade. Mm -hmm. Um, A famous student now actually, Jameer and his, his mom, Fatima, um, who are on John Marrow's, uh, PBS special on um, Success Academy, where they actually, the son actually goes to our school. I teach at the Earth School. Um, And he, his mom publicly made it very public about the treatment of her son along with several others. And you see more and more parents speaking up now. Um, the, The work of school is to support each and every child. And you know, public education is like the cornerstone of our democracy. If we're saying that we're going to be using stack ranking systems in our schools, we're not only being complicit to a failed system of education, a public education, but we're also being complicit in, you know, seeing a a resurgence of segregation. Yes, exactly right. Even more so than the Jim Crow time. Yes, Um, Resegregation resegregation Mm -hmm. is such a key issue. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Keep going. Oh, no. I mean, you know, the the metric by which they're using, you know, they're making these decisions, you know, these high stakes tests. There's already tons of research on how, you know, the factors of poverty and, um, you know, one's parents' uh, educational attainment have more impact on – a, a test score, a standardized test score, I should say, than any other in-school factor. Mm-hmm. Yet we don't address those issues, right? This is part of a bigger problem. We can say that, you know, policies, you know, we have to follow because they're the rules. But our the history of our country has been riddled with problematic laws, right? Jim Crow laws were problematic. Um, I see these as these um, new policies in education is even more insidious than Jim Crow because it's under the guise of civil rights. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Of well, it's, it's like these charter, it's like these charter school, quote unquote, activists who uh, put on a T-shirt and say that they're trying to uh, <laughs> to, to bring equality. You know oh what I mean? That God. they're that they're fighting for equality when, in fact, yeah. they're fighting for the bottom line of Wall Street hedge funds who have been funding exactly. those movements, who created those movements, who fund, uh, you know, bullshit documentaries like Waiting for Superman and all of yeah. the rest of these things, which is nothing but corporate propaganda. Um, right. And and. Just uh, for a sort of a, um, let's call it a, you know, a high level view of all of this, people should remember, too, that part of the drive here is just as you mentioned, it is to, quote unquote, capitalize, that is, use mm-hmm. the, 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 the concept, the template of corporate capitalism to capitalize on public education. In other mm-hmm. words, to make it into a money making machine. And this is one of the ways in which they do that. And they bring in these billion dollar corporations like Pearson, and Pearson gets the contract to make the standardized tests, to develop the curriculums that are aligned to the standardized tests, to develop mm-hmm. the standards that align with the curriculums that align with the tests, and so forth. And all of this, this sort of cycle of uh, cash and profits and charter schools and all of that, this is all driven by the corporate bottom line. Right. You know, about 10 years ago, there was a huge boom in the ed industry. In fact, the ed tech industry, mm-hmm. you know, we saw in Los Angeles, the big controversy was a big, big thing um, in the media because the um, their DOE had these really strange contracts to buy uh, like tablets. I don't know if you saw that. I but certainly the tablet- did, yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, that's these are not isolated situations. Um, there's tons of money being made on the backs of our children, on the backs of our profession. And, you know, the the problem is it's not as clear as, you know, you one can see, but you can't help but wonder, you know, who's writing all of this stuff and who is really, uh, has who's to gain. And once you start asking questions, you know, following the money, yep. so to speak, you find you know, the Walton family, Yep. you know, you find the Koch brothers, the Broads, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. Yes. Bill and Melinda yeah. Gates foundation. They have this wonderful superficial, you know, ad about themselves saying that they are philanthropists of public education. Meanwhile, in the back, they are making tons of money. Yep. That's right. Or Mark Zuckerberg giving $100 million to Newark schools for charterization and so forth. I mean, all of these things, absolutely. And and I think to to use a – a, a term that I think is apt here, it is finance capital. That is ultimately what is driving this. It is right. Wall Street. It is finance capital, which parks its money in these foundations and drives things like a privatization of public right. education. And let me just make one other point here. You mentioned uh, destroying uh, the profession. This is a critical piece of this uh, yes. privatization drive because what they're essentially trying to do is deprofessionalize education 
education, to deprofessionalize the occupation of teacher, to transform a teacher from a professional into a service worker. No different right. from somebody who, you know, uh, uh, parks your car or mows your lawn or whatever. You know what I mean? In other words, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but just to say it is a transformation of the very occupation itself. And by deprofessionalizing it, they can make teachers into the equivalent of temporary workers. So right. you drive down wages, you destroy tenure, you transform the union, if not totally break the union. These mm-hmm. are all the same tactics of this same process. Right. I mean, what what you're saying right now is exactly the big threat to, you know, independent thinking and independent thought. They want automatrons. Yep. Basically, uh, a population of a majority of a population who are basically unable to think critically and question because their own children will attend private schools where there's a value of small class sizes where, um, you know, I'm talking John King on, you know, Arne Duncan, uh, Obama's, you know, their kids go to these private schools that value uh, the arts and, you know, having the ability to have space in their classrooms that are not under the pressure of high stakes testing or any kind of accountability or, you know, movement. Um, yet that's what they're imposing on our children. And even in, you know, in context of the labor union, we're facing the Friedrichs case right now, which would pretty much um, dismantle the ability for our unions to uh, organize at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, one last point before we dig into this union question, because mm-hmm. that is a major point here and uh, what you're doing is is really noteworthy. But one last issue that I want to bring up here um, the issue of the role of the teacher in the community and the community mm-hmm. itself is also, I think, grossly overlooked, specifically the fact that one of the major aspects of public education and the expansion of access to public education, which took place, you know, which which developed over the last, you know, 75 years or so, the expansion of access for all children in the United States, part of that was the establishment of teachers as cornerstones in the community. These are people who are engaged in their communities, who live and work in the community, who know the parents on a personal level, who interact with uh, civic leaders and so forth, that is being eroded and destroyed by a lot of this drive. So you have teachers who have never stepped foot in a, you know, urban neighborhood like Harlem or East Brooklyn or whatever, you know, what have you, never stepped foot in such a neighborhood, don't know anything about it, and then are kind of thrown into the fire there. And and then they're either expected to sink or swim. And if they sink, well, see here, bad, bad teacher, yet another bad teacher. In other words, it's a self-reinforced uh, cycle of uh, disintegrating and eroding community engagement in education. Oh, yeah. At the core, that's what it is, is to eliminate the ability for people to build community. Yep. Um, I think the fact that, you know, teacher voice, parent voice, student voices within the school, you know, to be able to make decisions together, that has been eliminated in New York City through the use of mayoral, you know, the implementation of mayoral control, you see some semblance of it out in Long Island and upstate New York. Um, 
the communities are a little more homogenous and they they have locally elected school boards. So they, they're able to have some semblance of voice yet um, that, you know, for, for us, I think it's a sign that there are definite disparities between the large urban districts and the suburban ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to shift gears with the time we have remaining yeah. here um, and talk a little bit about trade unionism in mm-hmm. general and specifically the teachers union. Because uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you were if you listened to the program, guys, you would you would have heard my interview with Dave Macaray, longtime uh, union negotiator, union uh, you know uh, labor journalist, and so forth, and you know. I mentioned specifically the Moore caucus just because I know it because I've had some uh, dealings with it and I'm a supporter of it. But I mentioned it in the context of intra-union rebellion, that is to say challenging for the leadership of unions to take them in a more radical social justice direction. And this is something that I think is absolutely essential for all unions, whether it's SEIU, whether it's UAW, AFL-CIO – UFT, AFT, and so forth. So tell us a little bit about uh, more the movement of rank and file educators, uh, and specifically tell us why it's so imp- well. Tell us about more. Tell us about unity and why more is so important. Right. So you know, I learned a lot in a short amount of time, and there are definitely people who have a long, you know, have had much longer experience and have a better understanding of the unity caucus, which has been in power since, you know, the beginning of our union. Um, But which again, I'm sorry, just to clarify for people, uh, there is the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, which is the national union. And in New York, there is the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, which is the let's let's the union for the largest school district in the country. So the UFT has its own long history. That's what you're that's what you're talking about. Yes, the UFT has a very long history. It's I believe it was the first teachers union um, in our country. And basically it's the largest. We have the most number, you know, we have the most members. We also have the largest school district in the United States, most number of students. So we, that, what that means is we have the largest number of delegates Mm -hmm. who represent us at the state level, the New York state union and teachers union and at the, the AFT, the American Federation of teachers. So, what happens in New York City has a large impact on our state and at the national level. Um, our more is a part of a network of social justice caucuses, you know, from across the country. Core being one of the first that I remember connecting with the Chicago um, uh, Union or caucus within um, Chicago's Teachers Union. Sorry. Um, also within Philly and Newark, uh, you know, we have sisters in Seattle, Washington, just recently they had a strike, um, and in LA and I, I can go on Minnesota, which is a right to work state now. Um, and what we found is the, the leadership within New York city has, you know, like I said, has a huge impact on what happens nationally. If you go back, you'll see that. Um, nearly every AFT president 
was once the UFT president. Exactly. Including and, the current including the current AFT president, Randy Weingarten, formerly yes. the president of UFT. Yep. And she was president of the UFT when I started teaching. Me too. Um, yeah. So I remember when she uh, went along with uh, mayoral control yep. and said it wasn't the right time to, to be opposing it. And now I don't know. We're definitely feeling the consequences of that decision. Um, and there were definitely opponents to it. Now every, and this is what people have to understand, that the president of our union also sits at the AFT level, I should say, um, sits on the Democratic Council. I can't remember the exact name of it right now. It's left me. But, um, you know, this is a committee of dem- Democrats. She sits on that committee. And so whatever we think is our issues in the school level are second to whatever political agenda the Democratic Party has. That's right. And so while, you know, you, you know, you can see Randy Weingarten already coming out uh, saying that the AFT has decided to endorse Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the rank and file teachers are organizing saying what? Who said that we were, you know, going to be endorsing? Um, there was no real democratic process for that decision. Basically, it was under, it was completely misleading the way that um, that decision was made. And there's also talk of that happening at the state level. Well, let me let me jump in here because I think that that is an example of a of a larger issue that uh, Moore is really challenging, namely right. the undemocratic nature of the union that a un- that a labor union is supposed to be at least in you know in in U.S. history it's supposed to be one of the institutions that really epitomizes democracy for the working class right. for working people, and yet what you have is a caucus that controls the UFT in a dictatorial fashion and in, in a national at the national level you have a leadership a, a, a very small crew of people who lead the national union who have absolutely no interest in actually engaging in a democratic process the only interest they have is in engaging in the democratic party right exactly so you know just an example of what you're saying um, I go to the monthly delegate assembly meetings at the UFT office as the chapter leader of my school who was elected. Um, I did that as yeah. well. Not <laughs> not the greatest experience. No. What you'll find is that the chair, who is always our president, stands at the pulpit, I call it the pulpit, and talks to us, basically gives us announcements for a majority of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do follow Robert's Rules of Order. However, when your president is standing up and basically and making announcements for majority of the time, there's a very, you know, there's very little time left for a motions period for people to bring up resolutions and, you know, things like that. Um, it's long known that when way back when I can't remember the exact year, but we used to have elected district reps. Right. So every district has um, what used to have an elected rep, those District reps became appointed at some point. I believe that it was maybe in 2008 um, when there seemed to be a rise of dissent among the rank and file and people being put into places where the unity caucus did not want people. So 
you see a gradual deterioration of any democratic practice within our union when they take up most of the time and space um, at the at the delegate assemblies, which is supposed to be a you know a place where people can have actual discussions. At the district meetings, this is where you know if I'm in District One. The chapter leaders meet with our district rep. At no point in time is there a discussion. It's an announcements period. Mm-hmm. We're be- basically being told uh, what decisions have been already made for us. In an ideal situation, those are places where, hey, you know, we're being we get to a little preview of maybe the teacher evaluation system that's coming up, right? Being put on the table at the state. And maybe we have a discussion and that whatever comes out from our discussions goes back to our members and that we somehow find a way to get that information back to our leadership so that they can best represent us. Yep. And what we think about the teacher evaluation system, at no point were we ever asked if having a 50% of our evaluations or 40% or any percentage of our evaluations based on test scores, um, if there was any idea that that was a great idea. And of course it wasn't. The other thing that's interesting about this, well, I guess would be interesting for people to know, which is really infuriating if you're in the union, is the fact that specifically with UFT, one of the really uh, nefarious things that the Unity Caucus does is it maintains its grip on power through absenteeism because they have control of the retirees and the retirees who are not actively in the classroom who have gone, many of them have moved down to Florida to live out, you know, their golden years or whatever. And they vote by absentee ballot. And they're basically under the thumb of unity caucus. So you could have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angry teachers in New York city, and it won't make a dent in the unity caucus's control of the union. And that's part of the reason why I said uh, to Dave a few weeks ago when we were talking about this, that the movement of rank and file educators and its affiliates all over the country, this is the the leading edge, the vanguard of resistance against this kind of top-down bureaucratic Democratic Party union bullshit. Right. You can't – bullshit is definitely the word. You know, they have – the UFT has an office down in Florida – um, the last contract that we just had definitely ensured that retirees would be comfortable, would be okay. Meanwhile, newer teachers are seeing, uh, you know, probably no, no hope for having any kind of, you know, decent pension when they, if they get to retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that so many of our our members will probably never see the light of uh, a decent, you know, retirement um, is really, really disheartening. Yet most of them don't know. Um, the retirees definitely hold down the vote. The last election in 2012, we saw, I think it was about a 21 or 22 percent voter turnout. Of that, a majority is a huge chunk of the people who voted were the retirees. Um Active teachers did not vote. It was very telling. And when Moore brought up a resolution to do some kind of, um, you know, study of why that was, it was turned down at the DA. Said so we're a democratic, you know, labor union. We need to get, you know, the fact that our voter turnout was so low 
um, is problematic and we need to figure out what we can do about it. And our union did not want to do anything about it. Well, of course they wouldn't because the union is controlled by the people who benefit from a system like that. So, you know, naturally. um, And it it should be highlighted here that when I when I bring this up and when when you're saying that it's not to denigrate retired teachers, they deserve all of the, you know, all of their benefits, their pensions, their 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 right to uh, have a say or what what have you. The, The reason I bring it up is because this is one of the mechanisms by which the Democratic Party operatives manipulate and control the union for the in the interests of and let's just say it very clearly the democratic party because ultimately that is what it is when the uh in in 2000 let's see if in 2011 2012 and 2013 throughout that time period there was a drive to really make some reforms within that union and the leadership put the brakes on that because their response was simply well let's just wait for Bloomberg to get out of office, de Blasio will come in and things will get better. In other words, wait for the Republican to leave, the Democrat comes in and everything's fine. But that is, of course, a recipe for the continued destruction and erosion of the union. And everybody knows that, including the leadership. They do know that. And there's no, there hasn't been any, they, this is the problem. They don't know or they don't care to organize and mobilize our membership exactly around any issue mobilization is a threat to them gia you know that yes absolutely they block the vote i was there in um the convention the aft convention two years ago when michael mulgrew stood on the floor and threatened to punch and kick anyone who would dare pry the common core standards his common core standards from his hands um Michael, was, Michael Mulgrew is the pre- current president of the yes. UFT. And working teachers on the floor were literally aghast. They could not believe uh, he would say that. And the only thing I could smell on him was like desperation, right? Um, he had to. His job was to make sure that rank-and-file teachers didn't uh, – vote down common core standards because mm-hmm. that was probably part of the $4 million, you know, agreement for taking that money from the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, um, you know, to keep that. And that was probably the agreement with the democratic party. Yeah. And, and that's part, it's a, it's a fundamental part of the funds from race to the top, which is of course, mm-hmm. uh, all connected to the Obama administration. It's the Obama administration initiative. So yes, I mean, all of these things, um, we're running out of time, but mm-hmm. I just want to, I just want to hit at a couple of things. So all of this being said, uh, Gia, you are running in the upcoming election within the UFT. You are the candidate for president uh, representing the Moore Caucus. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the the fight uh, leading up to this election, um, mm-hmm. how you envision this process unfolding, and uh, the future for Moore. Well, um, what I see it. The election as is a huge mobilizing and organizing effort. It's a tool. Many, many people have actually written to me saying, oh, my God, there's hope. There might be hope for our union yet. I think what I, I you know, individually but more collectively represent is the frustration, the collective frustration 
of rank and file teachers, of parents even, because so many parents have said, how can, you know, how can we help more in this election? You guys need to get into office. Um, it's, it, this is really not just, you know, about democratizing our union, but it's also about addressing the issues that are eroding any kind of uh, public voice in decision making. And I see more just growing and building um, locally within the schools to bring back that collective voice. Uh, you know, people are either completely fed up to the point of wanting to leave, um, and some, many, many have already. But we can't leave. We have to stay and fight uh, for the schools that are, you know, that we all deserve in our communities. And I think that more right now represents the only hope um, for that in its collaboration with other, uh, you know, grassroots groups like Change the Stakes, NYC Opt Out, which is an op, you know, another organizing uh, effort in New York City to. Uh, you know, put the brakes on all the data and refuse the tests. Um, you know, class size matters. Other organizing groups are definitely um, in support of changing our union. They see this as tantamount to change within our society, in our communities. Well, exactly. And I, I want to even broaden it further because one of the reasons why I've pushed more a few, a few times on this program and, and elsewhere and, uh, you know, talk about it with people is because I think that the movement of rank and file educators is an indication of a larger uh, hopefully trend that will continue in the U.S., namely the uh, uh, rebellion within these unions, because these unions <laughs> organize labor in general, which has been so uh, decimated over the last few decades uh, of neoliberalism, which has <laughs> been really just destroyed to a large extent. I mean, we all are familiar with the uh, statistics in the private sector is like 7% union, in the public center is like 30% right. union. Yeah. But r we know all of that. But what we need is rebellions in these unions and to break with the Democratic Party and to transform yeah. these unions and to, to push them in a radical direction. And the only way that that can happen is groups and caucuses like Moore seizing <laughs> control of these unions because we're not just talking about education here. We're talking about manufacturing. We're talking about service workers. We're talking about fast food workers. We're talking about all the different sectors of our working class in this country, all of whom are being decimated by capital, all of whom are being sold down the river by the Democratic Party. So in many yep. ways, I think that uh, the movement of rank and file educators and its affiliated groups are uh, the leading edge of this struggle. Absolutely. I definitely see that. Our, the parents of our, of our students are all struggling. The mounting pressures on their lives and then in our schools are driving wedges uh, between us. And this is a time I think it's critical and you're seeing it and we're feeling it definitely that people are, are pushing back against this, um, the division that's happening. And our unions are going to be critical in making sure we support not just, you know, our profession, but, you know, all of our families who work in other sectors of our communities. Absolutely. Um, 
a, a lot more to say, but we're going to have to leave it there for now. Um, again, uh, I've been chatting with Gia Lee. She is the uh, candidate for president of the UFT, representing the Moore Caucus. That's the Movement of Rank and File Educators. I mean, uh, if you are a parent, if you are a uh, union member, if you're just a concerned uh, citizen in this country, this is a struggle that you should be paying attention to because what's happening in education is what's happening in all of these different sectors and what what the teachers do I think in many ways will set an example for these other workers so uh, Gia I want to commend you for the work you're doing I want to uh, express my support for for obviously for your candidacy and everything else and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again once the election's over oh thank you so much Eric for having me and definitely sending solidarity out to everybody Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Gia. Listeners, stick with us. We'll be back on the other side of the break. A lot more to discuss on the issue of education, common core standards, so much more. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Yeah. Feel this from the bottom of my heart, y'all. Truly inspired. Here we go. Come on. Look. Yo. Yo. I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight for my Chicago teachers. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight for my Chicago teachers. The teachers are tired, the students dumbfounded, the budgets get cut, so classes are overcrowded. Streets Full of violence, the blue coat is silence. So I'ma keep rhyming till salaries start rising. The unions are rising, taken to the streets. The workers are united, so the mayors got beef. Rhymes a fake pretender with a corporate agenda. Neoliberal offender, of course you offend us. This ain't about money, that's far from the truth. They want better work conditions to teach the youth. Politicians, I don't trust them, it's all in the name. The president, the mayor, all want political gain. They'd rather put the kids in jail, shackle them with chains and provide an education that challenges the brain. Top down education, Chicago the birthplace. Now it's spread a nationwide all over the place. They don't teach us how to think, they teach us how to test, they teach us how to work to put money in their checks. The CEOs need to get up out the classroom before these streets get hotter than the sand in Cancun. So join the picket line like Mr. Pickett in his prime. Put on your red shirt like the Bulls in '95. Hit the streets with a sign They say I'm fighting for mine It's a fork in the road And you gotta choose a side And yes, I'm proud to say I was a public school student It was public school teachers That first taught me music And yes, I'm proud to say I was a public school student A public school teacher First taught me music Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher Chicago teacher Chicago teacher I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher So I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers Went to Little Lincoln School in a little school bus Desegregation, paid 20 cents for lunch Reduced price ticket for the lower income children Art and music classes in between math and English Now it's different, they just teaching to the test Forced by the feds, all they losing that check Too many children left behind by this corporate assembly line How they privatize, education is a human right And they kids gonna be fine, they sent them to private schools While ours get sent to prison or given a job serving fast food Cash rules so it gets treated like a business Bought and sold by businessmen turned politicians So if Brown was the chief of staff And Arnie Duncan got his start in Chicago selling off the education 
my God, I respond. The teachers or the corporations, which side is he on? The streets is getting hot, they blame the heat on Chief Keith. But it's a million others like him being created every week. And we all teach, we all learn, and the streets is gonna burn before it gets worse. I put on my red shirt, cause homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher. Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher. So I'm inspired by the fight for my Chicago teachers. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher. Chicago Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. And, you know, before the break, we were touching on so many uh, important concepts and, and, and issues uh, related to public education and the assault on public education. And I feel like uh, Gia gave us a... Um, an excellent uh, insight into what it's like in New York City, for instance, the largest school district in the country, one of the important segments within the American Federation of Teachers. But now I want to shift gears a little bit and take, if we could, a broader perspective on some of these uh, political issues and the political context within which we have to understand this assault on public education. And we couldn't do any better than uh, my next guest, Murray. Mercedes yeah. Schneider is with us today. She is a professional educator, first and foremost, but also a renowned author. Two very, very important books, A Chronicle of Echoes, Who's Who in the Implosion of American Education, and the indispensable book, Common Core Dilemma, Who Owns Our Schools? So uh, also follow her work on her blog, deutsch29.wordpress.com. Mercedes, welcome to Counter. Punch Radio. Well, thank you, Eric. I want to begin with a very broad question that you've been spending a lot of time helping people to understand this, uh, what we might call the privatization of education. It's what we were talking about in the first part of the program. Tell us how you understand this drive of privatization and what the driving force behind it is. That is a broad one. Um, I, I will first talk about the term privatization. I've had some folks tell me, oh, uh, it's not privatization of public education if nonprofits are involved. Uh, and I say no, mm -hmm. uh, because what, when I think of privatization, I think of public money being removed from accountability to the public, like there's no regular systematic public auditing and also uh, entities that take the public money are not uh, under the auspices of elected boards. Mm -hmm. And so the, the removal of the money is, I think that's, that's the bottom line. Uh, education in America is worth above a half a trillion a year. And, and there's a lot of money to be made in education. Typically, the people who go into education, who become teachers and administrators in public education, particularly, uh, they're not—they're not ladder climbers. They—they don't go into. I didn't go into teaching to make six figures. I know better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, in that respect, we're sitting ducks for people who want to say, you know what? There's there's a lot of money to be made in education, and so let's brand education, public education, as a failure, and let's say that we can do it better if we are allowed to use market-driven strategies, uh, you know, corporate 
education reform. And what invariably happens uh, is that public money is removed from public accountability. Even though they talk a good game, these folks coming in saying public education has failed us, people need choices and options, uh, and the failure is, is chiefly based on standardized test scores, which that is a system so easy to game, so easy to to be manipulated and misunderstood, but when, you know, it produces numbers and there's a deception there that, that the number is objective and it's the proof of failure of education. And so uh, public schools and public school systems nationwide are facing uh, declarations of being called failures, of their teachers wrongly being measured using student standardized test scores. I don't directly control a student score, and a student standardized test is created to measure the outcome, the educational outcome of a student, not the the input of the teacher. And so there's, you know, teachers nationwide are being declared failure. Schools are being graded using letter grades. They're being declared failures, and so uh, a lot of push to convert traditional public education, community schools, into market-based charter schools, charter chains, uh, a lesser successful push for vouchers, but that's still there where public money is, is handed over to private schools. Uh, to educate students. And so what's happening with privatization is it's a systematic breakdown of American public education. And what has to go if American public education breaks down is uh, compulsory education. Now, we can still say we have it, but students will fall through the cracks if, if we switch the system over to and New Orleans has done this, uh, the recovery school district in New Orleans, it's 100% charter, and each of those charters is its own little school system. Uh, and so if a student leaves one charter, there's no guarantee what's going to happen to that student. There's no one tracking these kids. And so uh, if the schools are starting to value, now this is just schools in general, it's not just charters, but they're starting to value and they are pressured to value students according to their abilities to deliver high test scores, then there's going to be gaming of getting rid of certain kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, And so that is privatization. I've had people tell me, well, you know, survival of the fittest. I had someone say that to me on a radio station in Arizona last week. It's survival of the fittest. And at first I thought the person was talking about the students it's like, well, you know, yeah, if you can deliver the test scores, you get to, you get to stay. But it's, I think the person was also referring to the charter school idea that, oh, well, charter schools will work because if they don't, we'll shut them down and open up more. And that, you know, the churn and the money that disappears, it's like, oh, well, you were here three years, you didn't work, so we'll just open up a new one. But that's three years of, of public tax money that has gone into a venture that failed and that will not, we will not get back that students don't get those years back of their education. So let me just stop there and say I think that that covers a lot of what I I view as 
privatization of public education. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that also uh, another term I guess we could use that you mentioned there is corporatization, that mm-hmm. uh, that the privatization drive it is at its root a neoliberal corporatization process. And uh, it should be noted, I think, and I know you've, you've, you've talked about this before, um, specifically that some of the forces behind this drive are, you know, a lot of the major players in finance capital. So Wall Street, Wall Street hedge funds, the foundations where these billionaires park their money, be it the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the the Ford Foundation or the Walton family or what have you. A lot of these billionaires are the ones behind this charter school drive and this neoliberal process. And so I think we need to understand it, as you mentioned, as an attempt to A, seize on what could be called an untapped market that is education and B, the seizure of a public institution and its transformation into an engine for profit. Yes, you know, and there are a lot of motives going into privatization, uh, and there are different levels of exploitation and opportunism that are happening. It it becomes rather complex. Um, You take an organization like Teach for America. Exactly. Teach for America. Wendy Kopp and I are only five weeks apart in age, so I our lives paralleled. Uh, she got a political science degree. She she was a child of privilege, and uh, she tried to, at the last minute, become a teacher because she hadn't landed a job upon graduating. That didn't work out. She had done a, a master's thesis on um, on this Teach for America Peace Corps type idea. Uh, and, and she was already, as a student, connected to people who were influential in politics and business. And this organization that she started initially, it sounded real good. Okay, we'll we'll send uh, graduate college graduates into areas that are having teacher shortages, and they'll serve a couple years, and they'll contribute, and it you know it will look good uh, for their careers as they move on that they did a public service, so to speak, in contributing. But this very quickly uh, became, oh, well, we really need to get some of these people to stay, some of these Teach for America recruits, because they can found careers in education. We can place them in administrative roles, uh, and that's what's happening. And we can advance Teach for America, uh, put Teach for America in competition with the public school teachers and teacher teacher training traditional teacher training and the marketing is fantastic for teach for america they're very careful about marketing they're not doing so well now because it's crumbling you know words getting out even from their recruits because some of these recruits are realizing that they're being exploited they're being given five weeks of training thrown into classrooms unprepared and those that are that are more savvy, business-minded ladder climbers like our state superintendent, John White, you know, he's making $300,000 a year. He was in the classroom for two years in New Jersey, and now he's running a whole show, but he's, he's pushing for charters. He's, mm-hmm. he's an advocate for Teach for America. And so um, there's, there's the money there, there's the careers, but I think also, Eric, a person like John White really despises teachers, yes. traditional teachers. Uh, 
So that's, there's that level, too. The Waltons, the Waltons bring in another piece there. The Waltons me, cannot stand unions. Yeah, let me jump in real quick before you jump to that because that's an important subject. But I give my own personal experience. I'm, I went through one of those programs, not Teach for America, but one that was specific to New York City called the New York Teaching Fellows. I ha- already had a master's degree in creative writing. I had a massive uh, mountain of student debt, very few career prospects. And along comes this program program where they say, hey, you could get some uh, teaching experience, you can get a second master's degree that we'll pay for or that we'll subsidize and you can pay out of your uh, paycheck pre-tax. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good to me. I go through the program. They, th- I-, I get thrown into a school in Harlem. Now, I managed to be relatively successful in my first year and went on to do a couple more years that were, that were actually pretty solid. But in the process, I realized just what kind of a program I was a part of, that this program was not only uh, a means of bringing in talented uh, you know, young people, that's true, but it was also a program designed to turn uh, young teachers against older teachers, to divide teachers' unions, to drive down wages, to, to raise turnover among staff, turnover among teachers, and one of the uh, outgrowths of this process is that you essentially are able to divide the union against itself and to make teaching, a pr- the profession of teaching, into more like a service job, almost a temp position. That's what I realized not long after joining. Well, that's, you know, what you say about turning teaching into a temp position, uh, that is the goal of a foundation like the Waltons. The Waltons, the Walton Foundation and Walmart, Walmart is known for uh, union busting, like there will be no unions among Walmart. Walmart workers. Yep. Uh, the Waltons are known for going on the cheap. They have gotten in trouble for, for bribing Mexican officials to open stores. They've gotten in trouble for using prison labor uh, for their produce. They've gotten into trouble, uh, or they've, they're known now, for advising their workers on how to tap into public assistance mm-hmm. because they're not paying their workers a, a living wage. In fact, after I get off the phone with you this afternoon, uh, I am going to transcribe a, a an employee training video that was leaked to the public from the Waltons, uh, where they they actually say, "You may have heard uh, that the unions are trying to recruit, but we don't do you, we don't need that. We're a happy family here, and we don't do unions." So they're using they're using propaganda. Uh, to tell their employees, we don't do unions. Mm -hmm. Well, Teach for America is very appealing to the likes of the Waltons, as are charter schools, uh, because there's high turnover in charter schools. Teach for America, when Teach for America markets that, oh, most of our recruits, 80% of our recruits stay in education, uh, what, what, what that sounds like is they stay in the classroom, but no, no, they do not. They are moved into positions of influence in education as administrators, or they go into politics, and uh, they, uh, they are reshaping teaching as a temporary venture exactly. is what they're doing. Uh, and so the Waltons are all over that. You know, you don't have as much overhead, as much health care. You don't have pensions to deal with. Uh, and you and at-will workers, mm-hmm. many charter schools depend upon at-will workers because the hours are grueling. 
I was looking at a schedule this week for a KIPP school, 11 hours. 11 hours, the teacher is on. Now they say, oh, well, we give our teachers breaks and planning time, but that's enforced planning. Yep. You know, I'd rather go home after my eight-hour day and plan on my own than to say, okay, you have an 11-hour day. We'll tell you when you plan, uh, but you're here for 11 hours. Let me, let me, also, let me also add uh, to that point, not only is it uh, about working the teachers, you know, uh, to such an extreme degree, but it it prevents teachers from doing uh, filling some of the roles that traditionally teachers have. Not only, of course, does it prevent you from spending time with your own family, it prevents the teacher from really being a part of a larger community, a community within the school and a community within the within the community where the school is located. Traditionally, teachers, especially those who live and work in the same communities, they are in many ways anchors of that area. They are people who are a go-between between education and uh, the parents. They are people who can speak to a lot of the issues that are specific to a given community. But these type of programs, Teach for America and Teaching Fellows, what have you, charter schools, all of that, it essentially removes the teacher from that context. It makes them essentially a service employee, somebody who is very uh, sort of transient within that community. And one more point that I would say is that uh, it is a deprofessionalization of teaching. No longer is a teacher a professional, but the teacher is a service worker. That is something very, very different. Well, I had someone out of Canada leave a comment on one of my blogs that teaching never was a profession. Because if you, and I disagree with that, uh, because if you take away the unions, then you've got nothing left. uh, Teaching, and I'm like, you know what, it is recognized as a profession. In court cases, it's recognized as a profession. In the public in general, it's recognized as a profession. On my tax forms, it's recognized as a profession. So you can say it's not a profession, because and you can say the union makes it a profession, but I'm a teacher whether or not I belong to a union. Now, uh, as far as the wrecking of the community, I think that your point there is particularly salient when it comes to uh, minority com- communities yeah, exactly. where, you know, like New Orleans, predominantly a uh, black community, and you bring in all these young white teachers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've gone back and forth with some schools in New Orleans. They say, oh, you know, we're half we're half um, individuals of color, but, but even there's some playing there. It's like, now wait, are you half teachers of color, or are you just saying you've got aides coming into the school, paraprofessionals coming in? Because it's, it's not the same. And well, you're and- right, it's not anchored. It's not anchored in these children's realities. And it's and and it's difficult. Look, I'm I'm a white male who went into a classroom in Harlem and a classroom in East Brooklyn with predominantly Latino and African American and Caribbean American students at uh this is a few years back now, so I'm in my mid 20s and although I'm even kind of close in age to these teenagers, there is such a gap in cultural understanding and cultural context that I can't help but be on the outside of their understanding of their community, regardless of how much I attempt to understand it. So I'm not even necessarily casting aspersions on the motivations of young white people going into those classrooms. I'm saying that the difference between someone who comes from that community and someone who comes from outside that community is night and day. Well, you know, and a lot of these young people who were 
uh, enticed to join Teach for America, they don't they don't know what they're getting into. And I've ca- I've right. written about them and called them naive, and I don't mean that negatively. You know, it's like you don't have the world experience, but you've been fed from Teach for America the ideal. You're going to go in and you're going to revolutionize these yep. children's lives. Well, that sounds very appealing to some young people of privilege. You know, I've, I've had privilege. I want to go help someone who doesn't. But they are not equipped for their situation. And, uh, you know, it's when they get there that they realize how ill-equipped they are. And and some of them realize, you know, I I am well intentioned and I can help to degree, but you know, I, I'm I'm not a part of I cannot really connect to these students and I'm going to leave and be replaced and it's going to be constant turnover and that that's not good either to do that. Um so uh yeah, it, it it's just it's just bad all around. But you will have a handful of folk that seize on it as a career ladder climb moment. That's right. Uh, and you know, and, and and that is terrible and that is that is what is is happening by and large. And I know we've spoken a lot about Teach for America. I don't want to um I don't want to insinuate that it's only Teach for America. When Teach for America started, I was at the end of my time at LSU, and I had a friend who uh, told me, you know, about this new program, Teach for America, and you go in, if you don't have a degree in education, you get certified, and you assist in a classroom for a couple years, and I thought it was a great idea. But at that time, we weren't having this exploitation, this nationwide exploitation of public education that we're having now and you know i know you had mentioned common core we haven't even we haven't even gotten a chance to talk about that but well we're about uh, common, to <laughs> yeah well um how much time do you have we have we have, uh, and, we have as much time as you need to explain okay well i'm not going to stay for very long because the saint vikings game is on so <laughs> i'm gonna get back to that but um common core the idea behind that, first off, it was man, it was manufactured from the top, people of privilege uh, in the beltway, outside the classroom, you know, um, uh, think tanks and that sort of thing. Uh, they are the ones behind Common Core. Yep. And the idea behind Common Core is that if we get common standards and we get common assessments, then it's then we standardize the educational experience and it's easier to market because we can do something. Bill Gates loves to talk about, you know, uh, bringing it to scale, you know, uh, and I've, I've watched him talk about this uh, on video where it's better for the education companies if they can make the same thing for multiple states, you know, it's one product for everybody. Uh, and so that is a major push for uh, Common Core is that everything can be the same. Now it's tried; they've tried to push it as something that's good, but uh, it's not. It, it, it's massive. It's not. It's not tested. And you know the real the real giveaway was that uh, most governors and state superintendents signed on for this thing before it even existed. So it's like, hmm. Well, and there's a political context to that as well, because for a lot of these states, they were forced into that position because the Obama administration tied race to the top funding to the acceptance of Common Core and this new curriculum, these new standards. 
Well, they, in fact, Arnie Duncan in 2009 spoke at the National Governor's Symposium, uh, and he was touting, uh, we're going to pay for the tests, he said. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll be common assessments to go with the common standards. And they play this game, oh, it's state-led. No, Um, it was enticed. That's right. You know, it was an enticed uh, operation, and it's crumbling now because if you entice a bunch of bunch of politicians, eventually they're going to think of their careers. So, you know, it, it, the feeling of Common Core, the public didn't know for years really what Common Core was, and the general public still has a hazy idea, I think, but it's, it's people in education, the teachers, the students, and the parents who have a much better idea. And so now we continue with the playing of the games, which is a marketing idea. We have John Engler of Michigan, um, former governor of Michigan, saying, oh, we don't call it Common Core anymore. We've, we've decided to call it Higher Standards. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they change, let's just repackage it. Um, we want it. We're going to keep it. Uh, we're going to repackage it. And the public, because the public's stupid, this is the thinking, the public's stupid, so if we just stop using the term common core, they won't know what it is. But the public does know what it is. Those who are informed, you know, particularly teachers, students, and parents. And they understand that the tests are tied to it, and they're very high-stakes tests. And students can fail these tests. They can, they can pass all of their, their courses and fail these tests. And then what are you going to do there? Yeah, exactly. You know, um want to make the other point as well that I, I guess I made in the earlier part of our program here that um, these corporations, these education corporations like Scholastic and Pearson, some of these major ones, they're raking in hand over fist billions of dollars on all of these things because not only are they the ones developing the standards, they're developing the materials, the curriculum that uh, aligns with the standards, and they're developing the tests that assess the student based on these standards. So in other words, they've quote-unquote cornered the market on educational materials. They're making tons of money. And then in addition to that, they're connected to some of these programs that are uh, uh, churning out new administrators. For instance, the uh, Columbia Teachers College, where the president of Columbia's Teachers College sits on the board for Pearson and is one of their advisors. This sort of conflict of interest, this, this revolving door between the corporate world, the education, world, the teacher training world. This is, I think, another example of the neoliberal corporatization of education. Well, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, There's no such thing as a conflict of interest. I mean, they're like, you know, well, so what if I sit on this board and I advise these people? You know, it's it's very difficult to pin down uh, this issue. Uh, One of our senators, uh, Mary Landrew, who was a senator for 18 years, was voted out uh, in the fall, and she she's now a strategic advisor for the Walton Foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so uh, it's like, well, okay, Paul Pastoric, former superintendent, state superintendent, Louisiana, he is involved in the Broad Foundation push to open up numerous new charter schools in Los Angeles to try and charterize the district. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of that going on. John White, who is our state superintendent, was an executive director for Teach for America Chicago. And in his, I just did an audit of his 
uh, state-funded expenditures. And it, even as he's state superintendent here, he's going to he, board meetings in Chicago for Teach for America. And our board is approving uh, o- over a million dollars in contracts to Teach for America. And so, yes, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap here, and and groups, not only nonprofits, but as you point out, Pearson, uh, in their earnings call for 2014, I have that in my my Common Core Dilemma book. I discuss it at length. They said we will embed ourselves in American public education. Yep. And and what they're doing in 2015 is they're like, gee, we we aren't really where we need to be. So we need to sell. We need to sell our image to parents. You see, the Waltons are trying to do that, too, with the charter school push. They said, you know what, Uh, parental involvement in in our push for school choice isn't where we want it to be. So we are going to pump multiple millions into certain cities, uh, and New Orleans is one, Denver, D.C., and we are going to... uh, create parental engagement. So you see how backwards that is. That's right. It's like we have decided on school choice, and we want parents and community involved, so we are going to try to buy their involvement. Yeah, and <laughs> there, there's, there's another aspect of this. I know we're running out of time, but I, I want to mention this just because you have such uh, experience in education. I think that one argument that, that could be made that I would make is that part of this uh, corporate charterization push that an outgrowth of that is what I would call a resegregation of schools and school systems. And uh, there are various ways in which this is happening. For instance, um, my, my, uh, my experience right now with, uh, with my, uh, my girlfriend who works up in Harlem, she works in a public school in Harlem. Harlem is one of the uh, most densely populated areas in the country with charter schools. Now, her public school is surrounded by a number of charter schools. These charter schools have two months at the beginning of the school year to dump as many of their kids as they can that aren't performing well, that are discipline problems, or that have various other issues, developmental delay or otherwise, and to dump them into the local public school. And so what you see is a widening of the the gap between the charter school and the public school, wherein the public school becomes a dumping ground for lower performing students, and then at the end of the year, the public school is in, in danger of being shut down because of poor performance. So you can see it's, it's in many ways a conspiracy against public schools to destroy them. Yes, I agree with that, too. Um, there's also a forced competition among all schools, public schools as well. And my nephew, uh, I was with him this weekend. I took him to LSU because he wants to go there next year. And he told me a story that he actually ended up writing, and I put it on my blog. He's graduating a year early um, because he was one of those eighth graders that actually took courses for high school credit. And so Mm -hmm. now he's a junior, and he's got everything. He's part of the International Baccalaureate Program. And he said that at the beginning of the year, uh, any students who were eligible to graduate early needed to ha- needed to have a schedule a parent conference with the assistant principal who basically he said she tried to make my dad feel bad for letting me go early and just dogged him uh, even told him graduating early is a stupid idea in, in this meeting 
Uh, and then some months later, uh, he said, we were called into a meeting where the IB coordinator told us, you're worth $10,000 per head. So, she, And the other schools in the district are mad at us because we're taking all of you away and our letter grade's going up. So it's created this unhealthy competition that exploits kids where you've got you've got what you're saying the poor test takers and the kids who need more assistance being dumped out of schools Uh, and you've got the kids who are more able being being treated like a commodity uh, and and even uh, badgered in the case of my nephew into uh, being that commodity because he's a good test taker you know so we've got it going on all over now the with the charter schools one of the problems with the charter schools on top of this is we don't really generally speaking know what goes on in a lot of these charter schools because they're not they don't answer to the public uh and we don't know what goes on with the money and as a rule the charter schools uh take fewer needy kids and they don't take kids all throughout the school year right you know so they, they can say, you know, we have a lottery and we have people waiting. Well, okay, but you, you actually only take kids at the year, perhaps at the semester, whereas the public school takes students when they come to the door, you know. When they arrive, they they come in. And so um, Eva Moskowitz in New York, there's a lot of pressure on her because it was oh, yeah. discovered that, yes, indeed, uh, there are principals in her schools coaching students out, putting them on a got-to-go list uh, and trying to squeeze them out of the system because they are not seen as desirable to remain in her schools. And where will they go? Well, either they'll go to another charter or they'll go to uh, a public school. But the public school is at the bottom of that list. Now, I, I know you said we have time. Let me make one more point in sure. Walton's in Walton's plan uh, to try and drum up grassroots support for school choice. The Walton Foundation holds groups like KIPP schools up as a model to follow, and so I believe what we're going to start seeing is even among charter schools, uh, the charter chains are going to start uh, receiving preferential treatment, uh, and independent charters are going to be squeezed out, in, especially in major cities. I think that that's the direction that corporate philanthropy is going to try to go because marketability, you see, uh, we, we go with the chain. Walmart's a chain, so the fact that KIPP charters as a chain is appealing to Wal- the Waltons, it makes sense. And not only that, the final point I want to make here is that it's done, it's marketed in the most cynical way. For instance, I was on the subway here uh, about a month ago or so, and I saw a group of teachers, I can pick them out a mile away, being a former teacher myself, and they were each wearing uh, uh, t-shirts that said um, something to the effect of, um, I stand for equality, teaching for equality, equality is the key, right? And then they go to 
to a rally here in Brooklyn where they all stand up for equality. But this, this is put together by a uh, an organization, an NGO that is char- pro-charter schools, anti-public schools. And the sentiment, the narrative that they push is that charter schools are a way of addressing the inequality that exists in education. But in fact, this is an inversion of reality because actually what charter schools do is they reinforce that inequality. They increase and expand the gap between those who are higher performing, those who are lower performing, and they increase that separation within a lot of the underserved communities. And this is one of the most insidious aspects of this is that it is marketed as a socially conscious way of uh, of egalitarian, you know, equity, of spreading equity, when in fact what it is is, of course, the opposite. Well, you know, and there are some people who admit that. I, I have a third book in press right now, and it's on school choice. And one of the one of the issues I raise in the book, uh, are you familiar with Credo? Uh, it, it's the Center on uh, report, Research on Education and out, Educational Outcomes. It's a charter re- school research. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's out of Stanford University. Margaret Raymond is in charge of it. Um, and I sat in a, I sat in a, a lecture, not a lecture, a, a panel discussion with Margaret Raymond, and I wrote down this quote that she said. It was a question of equity, and here's what she said. In designing a system, there's a trade-off between equity and designing a system to educate all students. I think we, can to- we would tolerate that. <laughs> you see that? Yep. It's like, well, you can't, you can't say it's going to be equi- equitable. Uh, you know, if you're going to have school choice, you can't say it's going to be equitable because there's two, there's two sides to choice. I mean, sure, you can say, oh, parents get to choose, but there's the other side of the schools get to choose. Right. And some can say, oh, well, the schools have to take. No, no, there are, there are creative ways to deselect students. You know, right. uh, and, and Eva Moskowitz, she has endless parent conferences with students who who her schools want out. Just keep calling parents conferences. Keep having those parents miss work uh, and keep suspending young students. And eventually, um, eventually the parents going to say, OK, I'm done. Yep. Well, then the Success Academies doesn't have to say, you know, we expelled the student. Well, the parent withdrew the student. That's you right. See that there's this pressure. So I guess we can end it there, huh? Well, I just want to add one last point. Since you mentioned Stanford University, it's interesting because um, Stanford University uh, released, I think, what is still probably the most comprehensive study of the performance uh, of charter schools. And I think it was 2010 or 11, maybe, when the report came out. And their finding was fascinating because it found that actually 83% of charter schools perform at or below their equivalent public school within the same neighborhood. So in other words, only 17% of these charter schools actually outperform the public school that they're allegedly there to replace. So if anything, even by their own measurements, the charter schools are literally simply a parallel school system rather than a better alternative. Yes, uh, you know, and probably that's a credo study. Um, it could be. That, you know, yeah. and, and even even credo, credo Credo has some methodological issues with its studies, and I know we don't have the time to get in into that. Um, but yes, the charter schools were supposed to be better. They were supposed to be clearly better um, than public schools, uh, and, and they're not. 
you know. And there are some, like last week, basis charters right. uh, out of Arizona. Well, basis is very rigorous, uh, and it's only going to cater to a certain kind of student, you know, someone who's academically able and gifted and, and will do um, lots of hours of schoolwork. That's, yeah. that's who's going to benefit from basis charters. But basis charters has uh, an attrition rate, according to their uh, administration, uh, of 10% per year. But from 8th to ninth grade, it's 25%. Right. So they lose a lot of kids because a lot of kids can't do that. Well, and that's, uh, or, and, and that's despite those charter schools having leached public funds. That's despite the fact that they're almost always far better equipped with far better resources. You know, my girlfriend worked in a charter school in East Brooklyn, in East Flatbush. All of her students had tablets. Every room had a smart board. There were projectors. There was all of the resources necessary. And that school still performed very very poorly. She's now teaching in Harlem. She doesn't have enough books. She doesn't have enough desks. Systematically underfunding the public schools and shipping a lot of those funds into the charter systems is another way that they deliberately undermine public education in what I call the conspiracy. Yeah, well, in Louisiana, there was a, an issue raised this legislative session about uh, how the charter schools are receiving money for special ed children that they're not teaching. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's a funding formula glitch, you know, and, and I've heard it explained, let's pretend I'm a little school and I get $10,000 per re regular ed student, 15 for special ed, and let's say I have three students, so that gives me $45,000. And my, one of my regular ed students goes to a charter school well, they just say, okay, you've got three, three students, $45,000. we will divide it by three. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and we'll, uh, we'll go, and I think I did the math wrong, but I think, I think the idea is there. It's like, yeah, or 35000 If I have three students, it's 35000 But if I d divide by three, uh, then I'm sending off extra money with the regular ed student. Does yeah, that make sense? That's right. That's right. In other words, this is a this is a means of funneling the funds into the charter schools in a variety of ways that they've figured out very creatively. Um I wish we had a lot more time to talk about it because there's so many other issues. Maybe if at some point in the near future we could have you back. But um, listeners, I couldn't recommend the books more highly. You got to get your hands on them. Uh, the first book, A Chronicle of Echoes, Who's Who in the Implosion of American Education. The other book, Common Core Dilemma, Who Owns Our Schools. Um, excellent stuff. You got to follow Mercedes' work, deutsch29.wordpress.com. Mercedes Schneider, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Oh, thank you so much, Eric. Listeners, thanks again for listening. Speak to you all again next week.